0: Welcome! My name is Patrick Curran, and along with my horrible pun-generating friend Greg Hancock, we make up Quantitude. We are a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In today's episode, we discuss the causes, consequences, and potential solutions associated with negative residual variances in factor analysis, a condition commonly called a Haywood case. Along the way, we also discuss vegetarian pepperoni, Jaws Part 2, Coffin seatbelts, balancing a ship, bad puns, sterilizing needles, dead canaries, hitchhikers, legal depositions, boxes of geodes, knowing what time it is, and models that give you the finger. We hope you enjoy today's episode. So you texted me half an hour ago. (laughs) Plenty of time. Plenty of time. You texted me with the charge of coming up with a couple of funny examples, (laughs) because I like how to this day you still have to stress that aspect to me. Mm -hmm. Funny examples of things that shouldn't exist but actually do. (laughs) So I sat on it for 15 minutes and then I went out in the kitchen and I got some water and I was sitting at the counter and I have my little three and a half by five card and a ballpoint pen. See as I'm holding it up. It's high tech. It's very high tech. I was trying to write things down that shouldn't exist, but do. I'm still not entirely sure where you were going with this, but I wrote (laughs) down vegetarian pepperoni.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's not really a thing, is it? You better believe it. The new Plantaroni Pizza, made with field roast plant-based pepperoni. Just $8.49. Plant-based
0: is limited to pepperoni ingredient only. Pizza, pizza. (laughs) Trust me on this one. There's vegetarian pepperoni. Okay. Alcohol-free beer. Jaws part two? (laughs) I think there's a Jaws part four. Yeah, but two started the three to Uh the four. Then things shifted sideways on me because those were the three I had. And then one of my kids came in and said, hey, Dad, what are you doing? And I told them and they started listing things and their Uh sibling came in. And so what are you guys doing? And they started listing things. Uh I'm just going to run through a few of them that were generated by the focus group. Okay. (laughs) Artificial Christmas Trees, High School, The Electoral College, Speed Limits, Any Nicolas Cage Movie, Socks with Sandals, Chai Tea, The Banjo, The Musical Cats, The Taylor Swift re releases, <laughs> Final Exams, and Baseless Declarations. <laughs>
1: I have so many reactions. I just don't. Even, I, I I actually like a third of the things that are on your list, which is. I did have a logistical question here. Not that people out there would know, but I will say we're actually recording this during the time in which your kids are supposed to be in school. So how is it that you all are sitting around the kitchen generating these ideas during school time?
0: Did I mention that high school was on the list? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Asked and answered. Both of my kids have commented that they find it supremely ironic that of their entire friend group, the two parents who put the least amount of pressure on them academically are the university professors. Uh-huh. And I keep telling them that's because we know how the sausage is made. High school is
1: <laughs> Just hang out. You'll be fine. You can be a C student and shoot at stop signs and drink Coors Light and it'll all work out, right? Yep. As long as you're
0: happy being a professor at a public university, <laughs> you're just fine. <laughs> so, anyway, did I fulfill the requirement of the text message?
1: No, actually, you entirely outsourced it to other people. No, the artificial Christmas tree was
0: mine. Oh, that was you. And chai tea.
1: I like chai tea.
0: Oh, it's a pox on humanity. Okay, Coors Light. <laughs> That and the banjo. I have to admit, the banjo was mine too.
1: Uh, so, I, yeah, what is it I actually asked you? Things that shouldn't exist? But do. I would say your kids probably came up with some okay ones. As someone who's got an artificial Christmas tree, I might dismiss yours.
0: You make a nice mug of chai tea, sit in front of your artificial Christmas tree, <laughs> and put on Banjo's greatest Christmas <laughs> hits. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's right, and I will tell you it is just as enjoyable as any other Christmas for me. <laughs> oh god, don't. This cannot be a therapy session. Yeah, I had some things that I that maybe shouldn't exist. Helmets for kamikaze pilots. Why did those exist? This is where you went with the task? I like chai. <laughs> Go to the next one on your list. A process for sterilizing needles for lethal injection? You're in a
0: pretty dark place. <laughs> Why do they bury coffins horizontally when you can use half the space and bury them vertically? What's up with that? (laughs) Did I tell you that's what my dad wanted to do? (laughs) He thought it was a bunch of crap that you had to buy two spots, and he wanted Uh to buy one and bury them on end. (laughs) And he said he realized that you would slump down in your coffin, but he had designed coffin seatbelts that you can just put under your torso and then it would hold you up for
1: eternity. He had a whole plan. What do you do in retirement? You invent seatbelts for people who are in a coffin. Dude, throw me a bone. You gave me two. How about a GPA that's over 4.0? That doesn't make a damn bit of sense. I work with
0: undergrad admissions at Carolina. Uh-huh. We have a 1 to 4 scale where their average is of 5.3. <laughs> My kids are in AP classes and they love it because if they just get a C, they still get a 4.0 GPA. It's a travesty.
1: I know. So the other day, like Quinn was mentioning something about, you know, some kid who has a GPA of 4.8. I hear the needle scratch across the record of my soul. So I'm on board with two
0: things thus far in this conversation. One is, is I totally support vertical coffin. (laughs) The current seatbelt patent pending. Uh is going to change the world. Second, I'm also totally on board of having a mean of 5.3 on a 1 to 4 scale. (laughs) Both of which lead me to almost the exact same question I have in every recording session, which is your point
1: is... Yeah. You and I deal with numbers every single day. And our job is actually to make sense of numbers. To try and take this massive information where there's uncertainty and noise and all of that and somehow bring crystal clarity to that. And there are certain rules, right? Things like correlations. Can't get bigger than one. That's a nice rule. Variances. They can't be smaller than zero. I think if we could all agree on that, that would be good little tiny things i think are what we use to try and make sense of the world chai tea chai tea should not exist Ch- <laughs> i am totally with you hancock so those are the three guiding principles that we need that correlation shouldn't exceed one variances shouldn't go lower than zero and there should be no chai tea <laughs> but sometimes we need a chi square distribution it's a different type of tea test.
0: Listeners, I apologize on behalf of Quantitude. I really seriously do, because I hate this shit. I hate this shit with a passion. Okay, okay, okay. Sorry to interrupt, but hey, would you make your
1: point? No! <laughs> Patrick is alluding to something called a Haywood case, which for those of you who do factor analysis, you may have encountered, whether it's exploratory factor analysis, confirmatory factor analysis. A Haywood case, well, go ahead, smart guy. Go ahead and define a Haywood case for people. I
0: taught factor analysis this fall, and I thought, what a great idea. I will assign the original article by Haywood in 1931. Okay, minor problem (laughs) is I assigned it before actually reading it. It turns out it's really hard and has a lot of math in it. Uh And at no point was I able to actually find where he explicitly (laughs) defines what a Haywood case is. You mean Haywood didn't say... Hey, this is a Haywood case. He did not, but it's Haywood 1931. All right. It's a little dense. I found an equation that had a negative sign in it, and I'm pretty Mm -hmm. sure it has something to do with that. Uh But in the spirit of Haywood 1931, a Haywood case in factor analysis is a residual variance that takes on a negative value and results in a communality that exceeds 1.0, which are nonsensical and impossible values. So when people originally, in the spirit of old-school factor analysis, talked about a Haywood case, is it was a negative residual variance. Now, from there, at least in my anecdotal experience, that has broadened to include correlations that exceed one. But in old-school spirit, it's a negative residual variance.
1: There's a broader class of things that i don't know what you call them but i, I call them offending estimates things that just shouldn't ought to be right like the correlations greater than one variances that shouldn't be negative which we're talking about chai tea <laughs> determinants
0: <laughs> determinants just in general just <laughs> determinants shouldn't exist just
1: just leave leave that as is <laughs> Yes, yeah, so there's a whole, a whole class of things that really shouldn't be the case. A communality is an R-squared. If someone told you you had an R-squared greater than one, that's a GPA of 4.8. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it should not be. And the only way that we can compensate for having explained more variance than exists is to have less leftover variance than there could possibly be.
0: Wow, that clarified things just (laughs) to a razor's edge. It rivals Haywood's original paper. I often think of them myself as you get kind of a triplet. So you got a factor analysis, whether it be exploratory or confirmatory or a broader SEM, and you're using typically maximum likelihood, although there are a lot of alternatives to that we can talk about. Under maximum likelihood, to me, you get three classes of solutions. You get a converged solution that is a proper solution. You get a converged solution that is improper. And I think that's what you might call offending. Mm. And then you get a non-converged solution. What we're mostly going to talk about today is that second one. What if your model converges by whatever criteria are defined within the guts of the program, and you get a congratulatory note in your output (laughs) that says model converged successfully. (laughs) There's a lot of misunderstanding in applications because you can get a successfully
1: converged solution that is improper in any of a variety of ways. Some ways that are more obvious and some ways that are less obvious, and the more obvious include what we're talking about right now, the Haywood case. And that message just lulls you into a false sense of security. But it's a Especially the case when you're a new modeler, right? And you're doing page down, page down, page down, or the slightly more dramatic crescendo building, scrolling, scrolling, and you get the happy message and you're thinking, dang, I got this. And you go down and there might be a further message below that is a warning or there might not be, but you're looking down that list of variances that you have. And there are a variety of things that might have variances. They could be exogenous measured variables. There could be latent variables. The residuals though, you see one of those negatives and then your heart just drops right out the bottom
0: let's focus on negative item residual variances that results in communalities that exceed one because those are jointly deeply offensive along the lines of a 5.3 gpa on a (laughs) one to four scale
1: A first question that might pop into someone's head is, how is it even possible that you get a variance that's negative? If you think back to when you first learned about computing variances, the variance was this sum of square deviations of scores from a mean, and then you took some kind of average, dividing by the number of them or a number of degrees of freedom. So if it's based on a sum of squares, how could you possibly come up with a negative value? And the answer often lies in the nature of the estimator that's being used. And a lot of the modeling that we use, whether it's for factor analysis or structural equation, modeling, or related methods, we're not adding up a bunch of squared things. We're actually estimating that variance in an entirely different way.
0: One of the complexities is different programs have different philosophies on how to put in what are called boundary constraints. And that is, do you allow your parameters to live in the wild, or do you put up guardrails and say variances can't be less than zero, and if you slam up against that, During the iteration procedure, it either bolts you down at zero or pushes you back into play.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: How I sometimes think about it when I teach is, I know it's a dumb analogy, but it kind of works, is imagine you have a big container ship and you're trying to level it before sailing away. And you're putting different heavy containers on different parts of the ship. And what Maximum Likelihood is trying to do in a very broad way, I mean, like I said, this is a silly analogy, but it's moving those containers around to try to level the ship. Mm-hmm. And if one gets pushed in one direction and it starts to list a little bit, Maximum Likelihood is going to say, oh, crap, I'm going to move this over here and it starts to list back. But it's doing all of this simultaneously simultaneously. And at some point, the captain of the ship says, perfect, that is as level as we're capable of doing, that's where the containers go. Mm Mm-hmm. If the estimation gods are smiling upon you, those containers are going to be within the areas that they're supposed to be. But if one gets pushed off in one way and it has to be offset in another way to even that ship out, that can go into part of the grid that it's not supposed to be. Yeah. And that's where you start getting things like negative variance estimates.
1: Maximum likelihood just doesn't care what the rules are. It's basically solving a giant algebra problem and it just doesn't care what the laws are here. If something needs to be negative to optimize a function, it's going to come up with values that are not necessarily things that would make sense to us, but it's all in the name of optimizing a particular equation. And so sometimes the answer that maximizes or minimizes a function might be a negative 1.6. Well, what the heck do you do with that when that's a variance? Maybe the answer is that we put up guardrails, but maybe the answer is we don't put up guardrails. You can think about two general
0: reasons why why a Haywood case might exist. The first is never underestimate sampling variability. Picture in your mind's eye a population residual variance that is rather small. And we're sampling values around that population values. And guess what? Sometimes Mm -hmm. they go negative. That's life in the big city. So one potential source of negative residual variance is just sampling variability around a small number. Now, people have argued long and hard and vociferously that that shouldn't be a symmetric sampling distribution anyway. Doesn't even make sense to have a sampling distribution that's symmetric around a value that can't go below zero. The other one, though, that has gotten more attention, I think, is it is reflective of some kind of misspecification in the model. Mm-hmm. Some decision that you made somewhere is not correct. Back in the day, the assumption was it was primarily a reflection of Mm overextraction, that this was all embedded in EFA and you pulled too many factors when you extracted your solution. Mm -hmm. But pretty quickly, it then got more complicated than that.
1: One of the things that you mentioned that I do want to respond to had to do with the sampling distribution issue and whether or not the sampling distribution should even be drifting over zero in the first place. Because I know that when we learn about variances and their distributions, we always go to the chi-square distribution. We stopped that. Did we? <laughs> so, the chi-square distribution that's bounded at zero on the left side and goes up is specifically a distribution for variances or sums of squares. But in the maximum likelihood framework, we don't treat the maximum likelihood estimates, whether they're variances or other things, as though they follow different distributions asymptotically, they're going to be following these normal distributions. And that's why if we have a relatively small true value of a variance, and we're going to assume that it's a true value, that there's not a lot of residual variance, but we have a small sample, we expect the sampling distribution to go to the other side of zero. And from the standpoint of a maximum likelihood estimate of a variance, that is not a problem. But then the whole business of when this thing occurs, small sample size, obviously, because then those sampling distributions get much, much fatter when you tend to have instability in your solutions, generally speaking. And when do you get that? You get that when you have smaller numbers of indicator variables per latent factor. So imagine that you had eight variables and you were doing some factor analysis. We'll say an exploratory factor analysis for now. And you extract one factor and then two and then three and then four. You really are starting it to chip away at pretty much all of the relation <laughs> that exists among the variables. Not just maybe the true relation, but even chipping into some of the sampling variability, and you get down to a part that is exceedingly unstable.
0: And then some are—it's almost like not fair. Some prior simulations that identified items that have very small factor loadings, and we've talked mm-hmm. on prior episodes about how sometimes we can think about that factor loading as a tether that holds the item to the latent factor, mm-hmm. and if that's a very low loading, as that's a weak tether, but. Then And other ones have found that they're associated with very high loadings. The rationale is the very low loadings is that item is not well determined by the factor, but the very high loading is that's pushing that population value of the residual closer and closer to zero, and then you're more likely to get by sampling variability and negative variance. All goes back to my dad, mid bid. Always get the mid bid. Low one and they're cutting corners. High they're padding their pockets. Go mid bid. So loadings, it's all mid bid. You can. Think about things that are characteristics of your sample, like an outlier. Mm. You can have one or a small number of outliers that can lead to these aberrant parameter estimates. You can have nonlinearity. If you assume that your items are continuous and they aren't, we have a whole episode on nonlinear link functions and discrete items and factor models. A lot of it is. What you might think is kind of more common sense is if you just don't have a lot of information to define that factor model, then you're not bolting those parameter estimates strongly down to the floor as they can wander around a bit if your back is turned. But there are also more interesting kinds of things that give rise to these Haywoods. Not just, ah, you got two items per factor and 30 people. Well, no kidding. You shouldn't be doing this in the first place. But other than, you know, you've got several hundred people, you have six or eight items per factor, you have very reasonable loadings of all items on all factors, and there sits a honking negative variance.
1: It does feel like this no good deed goes unpunished thing, right? You've done all of your due diligence along the way with respect to data, with respect to variables, and all of this, and still these things. Things come up and they give you the finger. And one of the things that we have to try to sort through, and I think this is a huge challenge, is whether or not this is indicative of a large problem or a small problem. When this happens, one of the things that I worry about has to do with model identification. One of the ways we talk about identification in its really simplest form is that the data bring a certain amount of information with them. Sometimes we talk about that information as variances and covariances and maybe means. Sometimes we talk about that information as being the raw data themselves. There's only so much you can do with the information that you have. If your data, for example, have 8 variables, 8 variables come with 8 times 8 plus 1 over to 36 variances and covariances plus another 8 means, you are not going to be estimating a model that has 80 parameters in it, right? You're going to run out of information. So at the simplest level, identification has to do with not trying to estimate more things than the information that the data are bringing to the table. But sometimes, even when you do everything right on the front end, you can still, if not run into identification problems all the way. You can sort of be sneaking up on them, right?
0: And those drive me crazy. (laughs) The pernicious empirical under-identification. I think that's what you're referring to? Exactly. Dave Kenney talked about this in the late 70s. David Rinskoff wrote a nice paper on this. Picture a path diagram. You have two latent factors, each of which has two indicators, and they're correlated. Mathematically, that model is identified. We can count on fingers and toes, and you have enough information to uniquely estimate the parameters. But... The weirdo thing about that model is neither factor is identified by itself. If that correlation is not there, the model is under-identified. It is only identified when you correlate the factors because it allows each factor to draw information from the other. In and out, nobody gets hurt. What could possibly go wrong? Well, consider that factor correlation like a rope that is holding those two together. And the correlation is 0.5. And then it goes to 0.4. And then to point three and to point two, and that rope is fraying.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You start to lose that identification. Now, at some point, your model is not going to converge. If you mm-hmm. take on a correlation of zero, you're going to have all sorts of other problems. Not often does it cleanly break and it's just zero. The problem is, and I know it's a weird concept, but it's true, is it's kind of under identified. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that empirical under-identification where it's flirting with this model being divorced, right? Being completely bifurcated into these two little two-factor models that can't exist. But when that factor correlation based on the low relations in your data is estimated to be something so small, you have a tremendous amount of instability in the solution that you have. And then weird things happen.
0: And those are two great words, instability and weird, because it -hmm. just starts becoming unstable right as you think about that surface of the cargo ship Mm -hmm. that you're trying to balance and let's go ahead and belabor this analogy to death (laughs) now make it super sensitive that like it has a really sharp balance point and if something gets moved even a little bit it can have wild impact on the balance of the ship and so you're running all over the place trying to get these Weights in the place where it's balanced on a tight point, and that's because you're approaching under identification. Unfortunately, how we teach it is rarely, if ever, how it manifests itself in your own project. This isn't always just one correlation between two factors, and you look at it and say, Oh. Pfft. It's that. I see it. It's 0.05, and that's the source of it. Because the problem is, there can be drips and drabs of this throughout the whole model that just kind of screws with you on a fundamental level.
1: (laughs) The models that we deal with often have so many moving parts and when this knob is a little bit to the left and this knob over here is a little bit to the right and Lord knows what's going on with that knob, sometimes that rears its head in different parts of your model because many parts of your model are connected to each other, right? The parameter estimates are not uncorrelated with each other. They're all related and That is a phenomenon that Patrick described to us very early on using the analogy of the North Carolina State Fair, I believe. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Whack-a-mole. That's right. So when something's going on in one part of your model, another part of your model has to respond. Well, when lots of things are going on in different places in your model, sometimes they respond in that little error variance right there. And the response that it gives you is the finger, (laughs) and it goes negative. The larger problem is what made all those knobs in the positions that they were? What made that knob go left and that knob go right and that other one go all the way down to the bottom? Is there some larger problem with the model that we need to be mindful of?
0: I'm a congenital counter. There are four reasons for that, but I won't share them now. (laughs) But you get a Haywood case. So number one possibility, you have a properly specified model, meaning that the structure of your model generally corresponds to that which you believe to exist in the population, but you just don't have enough information to stably estimate it. You have small n, you don't have a lot of observed variables, whatever. That's, we already talked about that. That's option one. Option two is, again, that you have for the most part a properly specified model, Yet again, is the model that you've defined in your sample more or less corresponds to what exists in the population, but you have this empirical under-identification, whether that be a smoking gun correlation that's going to zero or is more pernicious and are drips and drabs that collect together and just mess with you on that level. Mm-hmm. The third one though, and this one I find a little vexing for a reason I'll describe in a moment, is you don't have more or less a properly specified model. That is, you have a misspec model. We have talked extensively about the whiteboard problem. You Sharpie in the squares or the rectangles of what you observed, and then Mm -hmm. all the modeling choices we make are drawn in with a a race board marker where we put in circles or single-headed arrows and dual-headed arrows, and whatever path diagram you drew to connect your sharpie in squares, there's something wrong. Sure. And that's leading maximum likelihood to have to shove this whiteboard one container way out near the edge to even the ship because you blew another part of the model.
1: Yeah, and if you go with the philosophical argument that we often make, I know you hate it when I say this, (laughs) all models are wrong, but if you at least allow me to make that statement, all models are going to be misspecified in some way. We have to try and sort through those ways that are really, really damning, right? Those awful misspecifications that are really undermining our ability to understand what's going on, and then those little misspecifications here and there. And so somehow we have to try to use this information to decide, are we in the really bad misspecification zone or are we in an okay misspecification zone?
0: Yeah. And in fairness to me, that's what's important. I'm told only thing that's (laughs) important. Okay. I don't mind the statement that all models are wrong. Mm -hmm. I want to gouge my eyeballs out when it's said as if that's the first time it's ever been spoken. Right. (laughs) So that's one element. And the other is in even greater fairness to me. Did you notice how many qualifiers I had when I was describing more or less the model that you have drawn Mm -hmm. corresponds to that which you believe exists in the population? So I'm totally on board with. Yeah. Sometimes out of the old factor analysis literature, is there minor factors? Do you have just little things that exist there? I always kind of view it as like static in the background and Mm -hmm. it makes it hard to pull the signal out. Or are you talking more a smoking gun? Holy cow, you really blew this over here and that's why that on the other side is not behaving as you would like
1: it to. The problem is, is those are really hard to distinguish. Especially if your FIT indices are telling you that things aren't so bad, right? You've got information about FIT, and I go, I kind of like those values there, and yet I'm still getting these Haywood cases. How am I supposed to balance these conflicting messages that I'm getting from my results?
0: Drawing on my clinical training from many years ago is, I would say, tough crap. (laughs) That's the model. (laughs) Right? Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. We have an observed covariance matrix and a mean vector, and Mm -hmm. we are building a vector of our estimated model parameters to get a matrix-valued function of our reproduced covariance matrix and mean vector. If I shove a heavy container way to the edge of the ship that gives me a big negative variance, but that allows my reproduced moment structure to be even closer to my observed moment structure, then you can
1: actually get a Haywood case that improves model fit. Do you distinguish between getting a big negative variance and maybe getting a tiny little negative variants. It's just on the other side what of zero. Little, Don't mind me.
0: It's it's
1: just vaguely
0: illegal. <laughs> I mean, in the spirit of the law, <laughs> if not the letter of the law. Uh-huh. So here's where the rodeo gets more interesting. Years and years ago, I was working with Ken Bolin on a big simulation study and we had a group of a few at the time of his students but all have gone on over 20 years to really wonderful careers in academia and research. Fen- and Chen was a grad student at Ken's, and she led a paper we wrote in 2001 that was actually a really good example of thinking loosely as you're doing one thing, but keeping ideas for other things. So we had this Mm -hmm. massive simulation. We ended up writing 10 or 15 different papers off of it in various forms. In some of the conditions, we encountered Haywood cases. And as part of the data management, we were deleting them because we didn't want to make inferences from the simulation to improper solutions. And Fenian came into a meeting at one point and she said, you know, we're starting to get a lot of these solutions with negative variances. I think it would be really interesting to look at those. Fenian did a really wonderful examination of the distribution of these improper solutions, predictors of them, consequences of them. It's a really wonderful paper.
1: It is. It's in Sociological Methods and Research yeah. or whatever.
0: SMR. And I can say it's a wonderful paper because I'm way down the list and Fenian was the real leader <laughs> on it, and so I'm allowed to say that. We had some odd findings in there that have subsequently been confirmed and kind of make you go, hmm. One thing that we found in that paper, the more paths we took out of the model, making it increasingly misspecified, the less likely we were to obtain negative variances in the items. The other one that ties back to your original comment just a moment ago you can actually conduct inferential tests Mm -hmm. of whether that residual variance is significantly different from zero or not. If you kind of hook your wagon to the symmetric Z distribution and people argue against this, Mm -hmm. Bolin and Stas Kalenikov have some nice work on Mm -hmm. what's the best way to test variances. If it's just little bits and just sampling variability and you test it, and it's non-significant, if you follow the rules of the fisher pearson Neiman game, if it's not significant, you're saying we can't meaningfully distinguish it from zero, so eh, what's a little negative variance among friends? And then if you proceed to get larger and what you would deem significant, might that indicate something different? Here's the problem. One thing we haven't talked in this conversation about yet is, well, what are the implications for interpreting other parts of the model? So I've heard people say, eh, who cares? It's a little negative, close enough for government work. Well... First, it's not a true maximum likelihood solution. Second, there's pretty compelling evidence that that does bias other parameters in the model. And one thing that we experimented with in that paper was, well, if it's non-significant, might you fix that to zero and go on about your business? And the answer is no, you should not do that because it biases other parameters in the model.
1: Meaning, leave it where it is in its negative value, right?
0: What we concluded is no, you got to do something about it. But not fix it to zero. No, two issues. Mm-hmm. If you have a negative variance, first, that is not a proper maximum likelihood solution. It's converged, but it is improper. You have an element in your parameter array that has gone where it should not. Mm-hmm. The letter of the law is you can't call yourself a maximum likelihood solution. The spirit of the law is that has downstream effects to other parameters in the model in terms of factor loadings, factor variances, factor covariances. Not only our paper, but a lot of other papers show that the presence of improper solutions can introduce bias in other parameters in the model.
1: The idea that it's going to cause problems elsewhere in the model really should be obvious. Because some parameters are correlated with each other. Now, I would imagine that that little error variance going negative, some parts of the model are not going to give two craps (laughs) about that little error variance. There is this thing called an asymptotic parameter covariance matrix that gives you a sense of how parameters are intertwined and how changes in one parameter might reverberate through changes in other parameters or be completely independent cut off right asymptotically separable from these other parameters so I absolutely expect what's going on with this little parameter here one little negative error variance where it is or where you move it to should have at least local repercussions if not working their way back up the chain for the rest of your model so what do you do? I'm going to argue against
0: myself because a lot of my arguments are in my own head and I lose a shockingly high number of those arguments with myself. Do you need me then? You kind of enjoy it, oh. you know, watching a car crash kind of thing. Oh, Close the door.
1: Okay. All right. All right. I'll stay. You can
0: sit amongst your paint cans <laughs> down in your basement. We talked about
1: this, dude. We so talked about it's this. It's the only way I can get through recording with you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that is not the first time I've heard that. Bauer doesn't even have to record in his garage, yet he chooses to. I I don't know. There's a curious way of thinking about it, and it involves canaries, Hmm. and it involves coal mines. Does the little innocent negative variance cause problems elsewhere in the model, hmm. or is it indicative of a problem in your model as a whole? Hmm. So the canary in the little cage croaks over and face plants, and then there's an explosion. I'm not sure the canary caused the explosion, <laughs> but is an early warning sign. And so it goes toward why we can't just set it to zero and say, ha, see, I don't have a negative variance. Who said I had a negative? Mm-hmm. Somebody say about? I'm negative. I didn't not me. Mm-hmm. The negative variance is almost like a little warning flasher Mm -hmm. that you've got a problem with your model as a whole, potentially, or at least in some part of your model. Mm -hmm. The notion that this innocent little negative variance is causing this big bad factor loading to take on a value that it shouldn't, we have to remember that maximum likelihood is doing this all at once and that that's just one indicator. So I think
1: you didn't answer my question at all.
0: Why should today be different than any other day? (laughs) Yeah. So what the hell do you do about this problem? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a wonderful paper that came out this year in Psych Methods yep. by Allison Cooperman and Niels Waller. Niels is one of my favorite people. Mm-hmm. He is smart and he is funny and he is creative. But Allison, who I found goes by Allie. Okay. I had a nice email exchange with her. She is a grad student at the Department of Psychology at University of Minnesota. I don't know if this is dissertation work or a side gig or what, but she has an Absolutely wonderful paper that goes through the causes and effects and solutions for Haywood cases within exploratory factor analysis. Mm -hmm. I would highly recommend this paper. The two of them just systematically work from theory to hypotheses to a simulation where then they generate new hypotheses in another simulation that generates new hypotheses in another simulation. And they talk about even some contemporary approaches of regularization-like methods. Did you notice I
1: still haven't answered your question? Believe me, I did. But in the spirit of the awful puns that we started this episode out with, you have to read Allie's title. And please know we had nothing to do with this title.
0: I give her credit for this because I did laugh out loud when I saw it. Mm -hmm. The title of the paper is Hey, would You Go Away, <laughs> Examining Causes, Effects, and Treatments for Haywood Cases in Exploratory Factor Analysis. That's a really nice paper, but it also reviews a whole bunch of other related work over the last 20 years that have talked about, mm-hmm. so now you own a Haywood case. Mm-hmm. What comes next? Right. So let's talk about that because here's the thing. You can't let it sit there. It's not a proper maximum likelihood solution, and it's an indicator of problems elsewhere in your model. So you got to deal with it. I'll start out with a few so what next, and then you can chip in as well. (laughs) Okay. Are we starting off little
1: and working our way up?
0: Let's start out little and then I'll see if you have something to add that's heavier. (laughs) Okay. I'm going to pick up the light stuff and say, hey, Hancock, can you grab that last box? Uh And that actually has my geode collection Uh in it. The big one is don't just look at it converged and there's nothing to see here. Go on about your work. Is Anytime you get a converged solution, look at that solution very carefully. Most decent programs are going to alert you to a problem, but not always. Mm -hmm. Convergence does not mean proper. All right? So always check that. If you get a negative variance, first things that I would do is look for possible outliers, look for some characteristic of your sample, think about are you estimating a model that's excessively complex relative to your sample size, the number of items that you have defining your latent factor. Mm -hmm. Some things that we can potentially do is, okay, you can't ignore a negative variance, but maybe you could omit that item. If you're doing some scale building, you're in an EFA, you get a negative variance on an item that might be in indicative that that's not a well-behaved item and that you could drop it that's a possibility right i'm not advocating for that necessarily but especially if that's the canary is it's like oh crap i'm gonna bury the canary and not tell anybody that it died (laughs) that kind of undermines the whole point (laughs) of a canary in a coal mine Oh,
1: undermines (laughs) dude
0: (laughs) you're such on thin ice Allie, this is what I have to deal with on a daily basis.
1: Are you saying that there are no conditions under which you would recognize that you have a Haywood case, but then make a decision to let it remain there? Okay, I have been
0: deposed before, and this sounds very much like a deposition. The lawyer, when I was being prepped for it, said that I talked more quickly in response to a question than anyone that she had coached before. And going in, I was forced to, every time a question was asked, take a complete inhale Mm -hmm. and then exhale before I was able to respond to the question. Mm -hmm. So... In my own work, I would not feel comfortable interpreting a solution that contained an out-of-bounds parameter.
1: Even though you have acknowledged already that there is a sampling distribution associated with these estimates, and that when you have variances that might naturally be somewhat small, that they could, in their estimation, reasonably drift over into the negative zone?
0: Yes. Okay. Ask me if I know what time it is.
1: Dr. Curran, do you know what time it is? Yes, I do. (laughs) You have a ridiculous amount of experience with being deposed. I do.
0: I do indeed. But you don't know Mm -hmm. if it was sampling variability Mm -hmm. because you could have a small negative variance that is due to sampling variability of a population value that lives near the boundary. Mm-hmm. But that also could be due to something else in the model. And it could be due to a misspecification. It could be due to an underidentification. It could be due to an outlier. You don't know that if you have a non-significant negative variance, that's just because of sampling variability. It might be, but it might be due to five other things. Mm -hmm. And it's still not a maximum likelihood solution.
1: Okay. Your Honor. If I think about some of the recommendations that you gave, and I do appreciate you giving some recommendations so far of things that you would check, right? You said you check outliers and that kind of thing. Some of the recommendations you gave were basically go back in time and make sure you don't run into these problems. <laughs> make sure you have a big enough sample size, make sure you have enough indicators for your latent variables and all of that, which is less helpful on the back side, but very good advice from a planning perspective, right? So probably the best way to deal with haywood cases is to prevent them in the first place. When I want up with a haywood case there are these two little fixes i don't know if that's really the right word but i want to make sure that it's a real haywood case right don't don't give me any of these fake haywood cases i need to know it's a real haywood case and by that i mean am i in some kind of local rather than global kind of solution the models that we have can get ridiculously complicated right i would bet that you run models that have a hundred parameters easily. When you leave it in the program's hands to start this search for a hundred different things, how do you know that it has made its way to an optimum, right? Whether you think about it as a maximum or a minimum, I will say that over the last 20 or 30 years, programs have gotten a lot better at starting in smart places and navigating the terrain, which may or may not be simple terrain. So one of the things you want to make sure whether it's by automating something within the program or otherwise, is that you want to try some different start values, right? Before you go worrying that your house is on fire, just go make sure that you have navigated your way all the way to that optimum solution. Fair enough? I think that's a great
0: suggestion and one that we should have made 45 minutes ago. (laughs) It's interesting because when you and I came up through the system, start values were a really big deal. Huge. We would estimate simpler models and then bring those parameters parameter estimates forward as start values for later models. Software packages now have automatic start values to the point that we really don't think about it anymore. A lot of times I'll have students say, I can't get my model to converge. And I'll say, well, what have you done with start values? And say, what are those? (laughs) You know, I mean, really, you put an asterisk next to a parameter and put 0.5 and you tell the software package that you would like it to start searching from there. I think that's spot on. The very first thing you should do is to say, all right, is this a global maxima
1: or minima? And to do that through start values. Along those lines, and by those lines, I might mean a problem we used to have and don't have as much anymore. It has to do with the scale of the variables that we're dealing Mm. with. Sometimes... You might have all items that are on basically the same scale. Imagine if you had all your items were these lovely seven-point Likert scales that you were comfortable treating as though they were continuous. But what if you have one variable that is SAT score and another variable that is high school GPA? So you have one variable that has a variance that is a very small decimal. Even <laughs> All the GPAs are up between, what, 4.8 and 5.3. So there's very, very small variance numerically. And then you have SAT scores that have a variance of about 10,000. And you're trying to manipulate these within the same matrix. That means that just the little internal rounding error that's occurring in SAT scores more than covers all the variants that you have in your GPA. This historically has presented tremendous headaches for software. And I would say I still encounter problems with people who come into me and they have variables that are in wildly different scales.
0: Back in the day, this wasn't as big a problem because we would work off a core relation matrices. <laughs> right, or wrong. right or wrong. Which is, again, you can bury the hitchhiker in the front yard or in the backyard, but either way, that damn dog is going to find it no matter where you put him. <laughs> You're exactly right. All right, so we've got trying to scale variables, we've got start values, all of that is good. Okay, so we go through that, and you get the same solution, and you get a negative variance. Now comes a trickier part, because it takes us back to it's less of a code and more of a set of guidelines. (laughs) The pirate code. That is you have to roll back your sleeves Mm -hmm. and start saying, okay, the canary died.
1: Look, my I know a dead parrot when I see one, and I'm looking at one right now. No, no, it's not dead,
0: it's resting. Mm This is an indicator of a problem somewhere within the confines of my model. Maybe it's due to non-linearity, maybe it's due to non-normality, maybe it's due to an outlier, right? Those are all things that are characteristics of sample data. But you know what? Maybe I drew the wrong model on the whiteboard. Mm-hmm. That takes us to a broader model building, model evaluation kind of topic. Do you compare that model with a negative variance to a competing model? Do you identify what is a parameterization that was strongly bounded by theory and one that was maybe less so. And you try to reevaluate that aspect of the model specification. You could write a Lin Manuel Miranda song of <laughs> specification, identification, estimation, evaluation, modification, interpretation. Go ahead, wrap it. Let's go. <laughs> That is SEM that I just wrapped out. Uh-huh. <laughs> it is, this is that part of evaluation and respecification. Entire right. books have been written on this. What it means is you got to go back to the shop and fix this.
1: Do you view that as the ultimate endpoint for this, right? That when all the other things that you have tried don't get you there, that really you maybe better just own up and think this through from the ground up again?
0: That is my opinion. Yeah. Like a lot of this is subjectivity, right? There are people mm-hmm. out there who are saying, dude, you're so full of crap. It's perfectly fine yeah. that if you do a signed test on a negative variance, it's non significant in my own work. I do not feel confident comfortable presenting a model that has what is fundamentally a nonsensical parameter. And other people may come to a different place, and that's the beauty of our field. You can post an angry tweet at me (laughs) for doing this, and we'll just go along our business. I don't want to literally type in a negative value in a table that I have in a paper that can't exist. I also don't want to manually fix that to make it go away because you're painting over a spot and pretending like it's not there. I try all the other low-hanging fruit and at some point you got to pick up the box of geodes and say, (laughs) this is a model that does not correspond to the characteristics of the sample data, and I need in some thoughtful and principled way to determine what is the source of that problem.
1: If we go back for just a minute to the paper that Cooperman and Waller did that we mentioned, Ali, if I may, in the exploratory factor analysis world, they had one approach that seemed to be somewhat effective, and that was (laughs) change the rules of your estimator, basically, right? So if you think about maximum likelihood, for example, it is a particular function that is being optimized, but there's an area that you and I have only flirted with, and I think that we should probably have an episode that deals with this more fully at some point, but that has to do with regularization, where you are building in some particular constraints. And I don't necessarily mean parameter constraints specifically, but the idea of regularization is that you need to build in certain penalties and rewards into your function besides just the optimization that's going on. Within the exploratory factor analysis. Analysis world, they showed that that can be a really effective way of still maintaining the integrity of your solution but avoiding some of these particular problems. Yeah, what do we do in our world? What do we do in the world that is more confirmatory? Where do we go from here? What I
0: love about Ali's work, and Niels, yeah, 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 I know you're there. but Whatever. That forward-looking, right? Because in some way, our knowledge of Haywood cases really hasn't gotten out of the 80s. Mm-hmm. I mean, it hasn't, right? As a lot of what we summarized came out of the mm-hmm. 70s and 80s, we still don't really have a solution other than go back to your room and fix it. And don't come back out here until you're done. <laughs> No dessert until (laughs) until your Haywood
1: cases are gone.
0: (laughs) This notion of the regularization that they were looking at within the confines of the EFA, I think there's some real promise in generalizing that to the confirmatory kinds of settings. What I like about a Haywood case is it's still a problem in search of a solution. There's not an easy fix. In my personal opinion, I don't think you should ignore it or fix it to zero. Mm -hmm. I think that this is an area that is ripe for ongoing work. I'm really glad Allie and Niels did this within the EFA because i love to see a major paper on exploratory factor analysis in the pages of psychological methods. Well done on that project.
1: Absolutely very exciting opportunities. And I hope that this has helped people to understand this problem a little bit better and maybe think through what some potential solutions might be along the way
0: all right everybody thanks so much for your time hey would you like to grab some dinner stay safe and stay pun free
1: (laughs) i'm gonna go have a chai thanks so much for joining us Don't forget to tell your friends to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever they listen to during those first couple of weeks of adhering to New Year's exercise resolutions. You can also follow us on Twitter, where we are at QuantitudePod, and visit our website, QuantitudePod.org, where you can leave us a message, find organized playlists and show notes, listen to past episodes, and other cool stuff. And finally, you can get cool Quantitude merch to start the new year, like shirts, mugs, and notepads. From RedBubble.com, where all proceeds go to DonorsChoose.org to help support low-income schools. You've been listening to Quantitude, the podcast where non-normal deviates feel right at home. Today's episode has been sponsored by Nike. Not really. We're just hoping for some cool athletic swag, like some Air Jordans, maybe. And by the Monty Hall problem, causing prominent statisticians to embarrass themselves for over 30 years. And finally, by Schrodinger's favorite graphic, the Box and Whiskers plot. Whiskers? Are you okay in there? Whiskers? Whiskers! This is most definitely not NPR.